0: Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church, located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We've been talking about uh, all kinds of stuff. I, I, don't know, I still don't know what to call this series we've been in, uh, but we're, we've been talking about transformation, how... God is transforming us. Kind of the theme, the jump off theme we've used is that we are in a new season. If you don't realize, the world is changing before our eyes. Uh, Everywhere you look, this is a global transition. Some of it's good, a lot of it's bad. But the fact is, God puts you on the earth for such a time as this. The problem is this, that the you that you've been up till now will not be sufficient for the you that the future will demand. You have got to be transformed to meet the demands of the future. And so God is always changing us. We're to go from glory to glory. As believers, we're never to plateau. We're never to just park it. And so God is changing us. We're in a transformation process. And so last weekend, we got into this whole thing on familiar spirits. There are things that the enemy used against you in the past God wants you to conquer so those same strategies won't work in your future. Amen? I don't want to fall for the same things in the future. I don't want to be a sitting duck falling prey to the enemy's devices. And so uh, I want to continue on in that theme. I want to read you a verse here. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Listen to what it says. Finally what you're all thinking finally finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes it was to the Ephesian church that Paul wrote this it is the most thorough presentation of spiritual warfare and what's going on in the spiritual realm. And the reason Paul addressed the Ephesian church about this subject matter is because the Ephesian church was the most equipped church, the, most, the church uh, best equipped to really combat the enemy because they were a mature church. They were, the, they were the New Testament revival church. They didn't have all the problems of the Corinthian church. And so Paul begins to roll this out for the Ephesians. And he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Now the word, the Greek word that we translate schemes in uh, this passage is "methodia." It's, the, it's a compound word. It's, it's the root word where we get methods. Don't, don't fall to the enemy's methods as methodology. We translate it schemes. Where we get our words schematic, patterns, blueprints. The enemy has a scheme. He has patterns by which he operated in your life in the past. And you need to be aware of that. You need to be self-aware of how the enemy operated in the past. You don't want to keep falling for the same strategy. You don't want to keep falling for the same devices that the enemy utilized in the past in your life. And so Paul says, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes or his methodia, his methodologies. Now it's an interesting word. It's a compound word that one of the words means to travel amid or to travel amongst. Well, as the other one has, has the idea of travesty or trickery. So it's the enemy travels in your midst with trickery Creating travesty. That's the idea of this word. It has to do with how the enemy travels in our life. We don't need to be ignorant of his devices. In other words, there's a certain way that the enemy traffics in your life in the past. And we need to break up those roads. We need to stop the enemy from using the same entry points that he used before. And this has everything to do with this idea, this topic that we were talking about last week, that biblical idea of a familiar spirit. A familiar spirit is familiar with your life, and it's familiar to you. And there's a familiarity that the enemy uses to enter into your life. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of, we need to be familiar in the sense that we're aware of those familiar patterns, There are ways that the enemy has accessed your life in the past that you need to become aware of. You need to be aware of these patterns. And often those things will happen. There's two primary times when the enemy will gain access to your life. In the best of times and in the worst of times. In the good times, Leif Hetland, by the way, Leif's gonna be coming back in October. It'll be good to have Leif back in the house. Leif used to use this phrase all the time. There's a battle you fight after the battle you've won. And there's something we need to be aware of. After you've had a major victory in your life, the enemy will come in while you're in celebratory mode, while you're feeling like, okay, now it's time to just rest back on our laurel, laurels and, uh, and you know celebrate the victory we just won. And the enemy will come in in those times. The other time where the enemy will come in is in your low moments, and sometimes your low moments are those times after victory because you're you're depleted of your energy. You're the the the. Uh, adrenaline rush of the victory you just won is now you're depleted and there is a depression that can can set in tell you what for preachers we've got to be careful of mondays there's a lot of preachers who resign their churches on mondays because sunday is a it's their big day it, there's a there's a whole lot involved and so we we need to be careful on those times after the victory. And the enemy will come in and try to capture and capitalize on those things. And we need to be aware of those patterns of behavior in our life. We haven't prayed yet. We're going to pray in just a moment. But what I want to do is I want us to pray right now that God would give us a sense of self-awareness. And to recognize what are the patterns that the enemy has used in our life in the past. It is a tragedy if the enemy can use the same devices he was using in your life five years ago, two years ago, last month. We need to go from glory to glory. And if the enemy is going to get anything from us, he needs to work for it and not go, go through these same old patterns and keep getting victory off those same old patterns. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And Lord, I am. I pray right now, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. Father, we ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, but also in the knowledge of ourself. Lord, that you would make us aware of the, the patterns, the methodea of the enemy in our life. That those old schematics, those old blueprints would no longer work. When he looks into the windows of our house, he'd realize there's been some renovations that have gone on. I can't get in there anymore. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, we talked about that uh, a couple of weeks ago, about when Jesus said, when an evil spirit is driven out of a man, it will go into the dry places seeking rest. Uh, there, there's the, the, an enemy, the enemy needs a host to find rest, The spirit of God is looking for a human host, and spirits of darkness are looking for human hosts. The demonic realm is looking for a human host so they can find rest. And often when the enemy is looking for rest, what he wants to do is he wants to find rest He wants to do that incognito. He wants to do that. The enemy doesn't want to manifest himself. If you see the enemy manifesting himself, you ever seen someone begin to manifest in a demonic way? That's because that is the last ditch effort to try to stay where he's at. And you can be encouraged. If someone starts manifesting, it's already on its way out. Because the enemy loves to hide in the background in someone's life. And the enemy is looking for a human host. And a great picture is when, you remember when Paul was uh, shipwrecked on the island and it says they were making a fire and Paul went to put a stick on the fire and it says that a serpent driven by the heat of the flame latched onto him. There was a serpent living in the midst of the, the sticks that because they began to burn bright was driven to the surface. It's a picture of deliverance. The Lord will bring fire in your life to drive the enemy to the surface, force him to manifest himself so you can deal with it. Often we don't realize the inroads the enemy has until we're in the heat of the trial, the heat of the flame. Sometimes it's the heat of revival. It is really a disconcerting thing when God begins to move in power in a church because I've seen it so many times that people that have been a part of a church for a long time all of a sudden may end up manifesting some things that they're very uncomfortable with in a service when the fire of God begins to burn through. Christians, you know, there's that that old question, can a Christian have a demon? Well, if he wants one. If you give place to the enemy in your life, yes, you can. You can say, well, how can someone be demon-possessed? Well, in actuality, our way of translating these terms in the New Testament into English is a very poor translation. The the Greek never talks about demon-possession. We're not, a person who is demonized is not possessed by the enemy. Even an unbeliever is not possessed by the enemy. They have a free will that they can exercise. The Greek word is demonized. It would be a better adjective to uh, you know, a, tr- a translation. They have demonic influence in their life. And a lot of times, people don't even realize they have those things until the fire of God begins to burn, and those things are driven to the surface. I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait around. I want to get any ground the enemy has in my life. I want to take it back. I want to get the enemy's occupation out of my life. I don't want him having any ground. And so we need to be aware. What are the strategies the enemy's using in my life? How does he travel in and out? Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. This is a troubling passage. I was talking to my wife about it last night as she was drifting off to sleep. I was so, I don't have time to get into what I was talking to her about. It was, it was so troubling to me. I, I learned something about this passage I never knew. That I'll have to share with you another time. Look at verse one. I know, not bad. Uh, In the spring of year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ra- they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba. This is Second Samuel. Did I say first? Yeah. Sorry, you guys are saying he's got a strange translation. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I'll give you a chance to get there. 2 Samuel chapter 11. I was just testing your discernment. See, if you really were in tune, you would have t- discerned what I was really saying. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 11. That's a way to kind of push your mistakes off on someone else, isn't it? Second Samuel chapter 11. Some of you are very healthy in your relational skills and you weren't taking that guilt, were you? Let's read verse one again. In the spring of year, the time when kings go into battle, David sent Joab, his general, and his servants with him, and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites, besieged Reba, but David remained at Jerusalem. So David had a responsibility that he wasn't fulfilling. He was in the wrong place at the wrong time because he sent somebody else to do his job. Well, look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof because David wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, he was doing the wrong things and he was taking a nap in the middle of the day, arose from his couch, was walking on the roof of of the king's house and it says that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now just pause there. Some translations, and it's probably a better translation because of who Bathsheba was, some translations uh, say that David said, is this not Bathsheba? And that was more likely because she was the daughter of Eliam, and Eliam was one of the mighty men. She was also married to one of the mighty men, Uriah the Hittite, and Eliam was the son of Of Ahithophel, and Ahithophel was one of David's counselors. Matter of fact, it said of Ahithophel later on that if you were to receive counsel from Ahithophel, it was like hearing the word of the Lord. This girl came from a great lineage. She married a mighty man, was the daughter of a mighty man, and the granddaughter of one of the primary counselors of the king in Israel. And David saw her from his roof bathing. And he questioned it and said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her, and now she had been purifying herself from uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent word and told David, I am pregnant. Hashtag big Problem The way this is stated is so poetic. At the time of year, when kings go off to war, David remained at home. If you look at the previous passage... Israel was expanding at exponential rate. They were on a roll, tremendous momentum. David was the man chosen by God, the anointing on his life, the relationship he had with the Lord, and the expertise and the skill that he had developed over time. They were having exponential increase, and it was a time of external victory that was about to bring about a time of internal Defeat. David was in a time of celebration where it seemed like everything he touched turned to gold. But there were some unresolved issues in David's life that set him up for tremendous tragedy that would be visited upon the generations of his family. I mean devastation. And not only his family, but the family of Bathsheba and Uriah and Ahithophel. You know, later on, Ahithophel would turn on David. One of David's primary counselors, the one of whom it was said that if you were to ask his counsel, it was like receiving the word of the Lord. And he sided. He would later on side with Absalom, who would become the fulfillment of the judgment that David was about to bring upon himself. And Ahithophel would then go on to commit suicide because Absalom, in siding with Absalom's treasonous plans, his counsel was not followed because of the prayers of the saints at that time and Ahithophel ended up killing himself I mean just a tragic story so this leader who allowed his internal issues to be visited upon the nation devastated not only his own family but the family of those underneath him it's a tragic story Man, I was reading this over these last few days, and I just felt this weeping come on me, such a tragic story, that it, and it never had to happen. So David gets word from Bathsheba, I am pregnant. To me, it's reminiscent of the book of James where it says, when desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. And David had desire within him that he was not confronting, he was not dealing within himself, and it got out and it conceived tremendous evil that visited upon these two families, and really the whole nation. I mean, the nation went through a, 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 a battle. It was a tragic thing. Look at verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me your Uriah the Hittite. Joab sent Uriah to David. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'll just tell you the story. You can go back and read it later. But what he does is he says, send Uriah, thinking that. So he's, Uriah comes and he says, hey, how's the battle going? And he's giving him an update. And he says, okay, tell you what, go home and wash your feet. You know, get yourself, get, get cleaned up and spend the night with your wife. And then I'll send you back. And you're, he hears, though, that Uriah didn't go home. Uriah goes and stays with the guards by the, by the, the entry to the palace. And David hears that, and now he's troubled, because what he's wanting to do is attribute his child to Uriah. He's thinking it's early enough on, she's, he'll just think it was a premature child, and this thing will be covered. But he didn't count on the integrity of Uriah, which is such a tragedy. This man who was so loyal to his king. And you add to that the fact that Uriah was a Hittite, A a tribe of people, a nation of people against which the judgment of God came through Joshua and the the Hittites were wiped out. But Uriah was one of those that remained. And he was a convert to the true God. And he was willing to lay down his life for the things of God and the and God's man, David. An unbeknownst to him, he was being betrayed by his own leader. And so David says to Uriah, why didn't you go and and spend the night with your wife? Why didn't you go home? And he said, far be it from me to do so. My brothers are on the battlefield, and the ark of God, God's presence, is before the enemy. How could I go and spend the night with my wife in comfort when my brothers are in battle? No, I wouldn't do that. So David says, hang around one more night. And David thinks, I'm going to get this man drunk, and when he's drunk, he'll feed his lusts. But he didn't realize the level of integrity Uriah had. Because even in an intoxicated state, Uriah's integrity kept him. And he stumbled out drunk that night and slept again in the same place. And so what David does is he pens a death warrant telling Joab put Uriah at the heat of the fighting and then have the men around him withdraw and let him be slain in battle. And that's exactly what happens. And again, look at the end of this passage, verse of chapter 11. It's just so tragic. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And listen to the ending of this passage. But the thing David had done had displeased the Lord. David thought it was covered. Nobody has to know. But there's an all-seeing eye watching you and this thing displeased the lord so listen to what happens remember last week we were talking about the two most important people the the two most important individuals, the two people who, the two types of people that will usher you into your future, that will take you over the threshold in times of transitions, are prophets and enemies, Samuels and Goliaths. In David's life, he had a Samuel to bring him into his new season and a Goliath to bring him into his new season. Prior to Samuel and Goliath, David was an unknown shepherd boy. But after an encounter with a prophet named Samuel who uncorked a horn of oil and poured it on his head and a man named Goliath who defied his God, David was thrust onto the national platform and now we see him occupying the very place that a prophet and an enemy brought him to. But there's a place where a prophet becomes an enemy where that person occupies both roles because of the way you've postured your heart. And all of a sudden, God has raised up a new prophet. But that prophet is at odds with David now, and he's about to usher him into the discipline of the Lord. Look at verse 12:1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, But the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought, and he brought it up, and and it grew up with him and with his children. He used to eat of his morsels and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flocks or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as sure as the Lord lives, this man has, what the, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And it was at that point, verse 7, Nathan turned to David and said, you are the man Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the, little ho- gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that were too little, I would have added to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your own and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your very eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you to secretly I will do this before all Israel and before the sun. And he's prophesying what will happen under his own son Absalom. Such a tragic thing. And it was this very scenario that Ahithophel, the grandfather of the woman that David seduced, was, was involved in, and he and it ended up in his demise. And all these people were brought into this tremendous pain. Listen to David's response, verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the God who is or the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. It was a tragic, tragic story. David responded immediately. He could have taken Nathan out, but David, in humility and by the out of the fear of the Lord, admitted his sin, and God immediately forgave him. And when Nathan said, you shall not die, that was a big deal, because under the law, the law under which David lived, he should have died, because there were two sins for which there was no forgiveness, murder and adultery. Under those two sins, you were the sacrifice, and you had to give your life. But David humbled himself before the Lord and found mercy, but there was tremendous pain that entered into David's life following this. Sexual immorality entered in his own home. And he opened a door for a spirit, a familiar spirit to come upon the the generations that followed him. His son Amnon raped his daughter Tamar, his half-sister. Absalom slept with his dad's wives and tried to seize the kingdom. I mean, it was a tragedy was visited upon this home. But I would propose to you what was going on here and the analogy that Nathan used with David. Listen to what he said again. There was a rich man who had more, he had more lambs than he knew what to do with. And that was David. But there was a poor man who was Uriah, had one lamb, one wife. And listen to this verse four. There came a traveler to the rich man. A spirit visited David one day. Remember that that word, methodea, what it means? Someone who travels in the midst of and with treachery and trickery. There was a familiar spirit that began to visit David. And David had not dealt with the sins of his father. I think I mentioned it last week. Many scholars, I don't look at myself as a scholar, but I agree with them. Uh, many scholars believe that David himself was the product of an illicit relationship his dad had. And that's why David penned the phrase, In sin I was conceived. And it explains why David wasn't invited to the supper when Samuel visited. David was an embarrassment to his father. That's why David was the one that would write, God is a father to the fatherless and sets the lonely in families. There's this this mystery on why Jesse would have treated his own son David like he did. David wasn't esteemed by his own father like his brother's. Matter of fact, when Samuel asked about David, or asked, asked if, if, Sam, if Jesse had any other sons, Samuel said, do you have any other boys? Because Samuel saw all these boys walking before him, and he said to Jesse, get your family together, I'm going to come and eat at your house today, when God had spoken to him and said, the son of Jesse will be the next king. So Jesse bring, or, uh, Samuel brings his horn of oil, he's going to, as the prophet, he's going to anoint the next king, and he gets there, and every one of these impressive young men that marched before him God said that's not the one and that's not the one and that's not the one and finally he's out of sons and he looks at Jesse and he said don't you have any others and the way that Jesse described it in the the Hebrew was yes I have a worthless one who's out with the sheep David had this breach in this relationship with his father most likely because of his father's Sin prior to that, and he was an embarrassment. Matter of fact, there's, there are two lineages shown of David. And there's, there's a discrepancy between the two. And one is probably his mother's line and the other the father's line, and there's other siblings that aren't attributed to Jesse in that line because there's this other family. And so David is dealing with this problem that he, in his lineage, and David has this revelation of God as a father, but there's something trying to visit him. There's a familiar spirit that has plagued his family line that David needs to be aware of. And he's vulnerable in a time of great victory where everything is going great. There is a challenge to victory that you won't face in times of struggle, and vice versa. There are people who live true to the word of the Lord while they're struggling, but when they begin to reap the benefits of their righteousness, they end up falling. There's often, you'll see great men of God who will have labored sacrificially for decades. And once it seems like now they're in a place of of reaping the benefits of those years, that's when they fall. You see it in marriages where a man or a woman, they'll they'll go through hard times and they make it. And then when they get into the good years, it's like they fall. It's because there is a vulnerability in those times that we need to be aware of. And you and I all, we all need to look at our family lineage and we need to look at what are the things my family struggled with. A familiar spirit does have to do with your familia, your family. It's the same root word. What are the things that came to plague your family line? Because we need to be the generation that cleanses our family line of those iniquities. There's a difference, biblically speaking, between the terminology of sin and iniquity. Sin is an act. Sin is a violation of God's principles. Iniquity has to do with a stubborn pattern of pursuing a behavior. That's why it says in Isaiah, we have each gone our own way, but he laid the iniquity of us all upon Jesus. It has to do with that stubborn pursuit of our own way. There are iniquitous patterns in our family line. And God wants to give us victory so that our children don't have to fight the battles that we failed to win. We can conquer those things and cleanse our family line. And the fact is, we can also open those doors that have once been closed. I know for me, my, uh, my, dad, my dad and my mom's both their families, uh, there was a lot of alcoholism in my family line. And uh, I was raised in a very godly home. My mom and dad had gotten saved. Uh, They were young. My dad, I think he was 15. I think my mom was around 17 when she got saved. They met a few years after that, got married. And I was raised in a very godly home. There was no language, no, I I don't ever remember my mom and dad yelling at each other. They were a very godly home. But there was a lot of alcoholism in my family line and the the strange thing is is that when i began to drink at 14 years old i had friends that had drank for years i hung around some older older friends that had drank for years i hung around people my age younger and a lot of these people had drunk they were they were raised in homes that that was common and it didn't grab them like it grabbed me and i now understand i was under a A shelter of protection, an umbrella of protection by being in submission. My mom and dad, in surrendering their life to the Lord, those iniquitous lines were not able to gain entrance into their lives. But as soon as I rebelled from their authority, I opened up some doors from those previous generations and for me, alcohol gripped me immediately. I took my first drink at 14. By the time I was 16, I was an alcoholic. I drank all the time. I I went to my first rehab, I think, when I was 17. And I already had signs of liver damage at 17 years old. It gripped my life immediately. It's because there was iniquitous patterns. And here's the interesting thing. Although the overt behavior of consuming alcohol was not a part of my home, some of the underlying belief systems that were the result of the previous generation's drinking were still intact in my home. Some of the ways my family viewed themselves. And so there's been this ongoing uh, mind renewal that we have as as a family have had to deal with and confront some belief systems. You see, it's not just the behavior that will sabotage you. It's the underlying belief system that will eventually produce that behavior if you don't confront it. You may have rejected the behavior of your forefathers, but if you confronted the underlying belief system, that, that I, that, the, the way of defining yourself as a family, we need to confront those things. If we're to go from glory to glory, we have got to evaluate our family line. We're trying to cleanse those iniquitous patterns. When I worked for Teen Challenge, we used to do what was called a genogram. And you would take a big piece of paper and you would draw, you know, you were, if if you were a guy, you'd have, you'd be, I think, a circle and the girls would be a triangle, I think, and you would put yourself in the middle there and then you would draw your maternal and paternal grandparents uh, on both sides, and you'd go back as far as you could, and all the family that came off of that, cousins, aunts, uncles, and, and there was a divorce, you'd cross it out and add another one, and you'd draw all, all and then all the, the children of that, and you as much as you knew about your family, you'd try to draw this graph, and then you'd look at that and begin to look at what, what kind of issues began to flow through that genogram, And maybe this line, there was a lot of divorce. And over here was a lot of alcoholism. And over here, maybe there was wealth and education. And you draw that out and you begin to look at these patterns of behavior. And it was fascinating to see that family lines would begin to produce this type of behavior. And once it branched out, it would begin to be visited upon those families. And we need to be aware of those things. And realize and deal with those types of underlying behaviors. And what I'm saying is David was raised in a home that he was missing some some things. And some of those things he picked up in God. It wasn't the things that he realized that sabotaged him. It was the things he did not realize. And so we need to deal with the patterns in our family line. I've said it many times, and I'll say it again. The good news and the bad news is there is no such thing as a functional family, fully functional family. Every one of you came from and have produced, by the way, a dysfunctional family to some degree. Hopefully, you're a little more functional than you, where you came from, and your kids are gonna be better off. We're supposed to go from glory to glory But every one of us have to evaluate these these things we picked up from our families and shut the doors on those familiar spirits that try to traffic and create patterns of behavior in our lives. A traveler came to David. It was a familiar spirit. I'll never forget, it was, I don't know, a number of years ago now. We were in worship one morning and I, I saw some people up here worshiping like normal, and all of a sudden there was a little girl, and I saw on her in the spirit a target, and it was, it was a target for, sexu- it was like, like a pr- sexual predator's target. Like there was something on this person to be highlighted so that she would attract abuse, and I was shocked. And I asked the Lord about it. And what, what I really felt from the Lord was that there was a grandfather in the history of this family that had literally consciously cut a deal with the enemy and said, you can have the women of my family line if I get this. It was an act of witchcraft occultism. And it was very troubling to me. And But I felt it very strong, so I got up and just released a generic word and just said to the congregation, hey, some of you have seen that there are are sins that have been visited down through family lines. And you've recognized that it seems like generation after generation have these things happen to them. And if you see that come forward this morning, we're going to break those generational curses. And so we did that, and after the service, the family that I saw of this young lady came to me and said, Pastor, we need to talk to you for a moment. And the wife said, you know that every individual, every woman in my family line that I can think of has been molested? All through the general, back my grandmother, all the aunts, cousins, all, all the kids. And I I told them, well, actually, this, that's what I saw. And I, I began to share with them, and we prayed over the children, and but what happens is is the enemy will target people for certain behavior and we can repent of those things and and remove the spiritual legal ground but there's it's not just a spiritual thing okay we talked a couple weeks ago we are a trinity god's a trinitarian being And he made us in his image. So we are a Trinitarian being. We are spirit, soul, and body. So there's a spiritual component to sin and to righteousness. But there's also a psychological component to both sin and righteousness. In other words, there's ways we think, ways that are, the ways our emotions operate and how we interact with our emotions, and even how our will operates that can both reinforce righteousness or reinforce unrighteousness in our life. So there's a, there's a, there is such a thing as spiritual legal ground and repentance takes that legal ground from the enemy. But we can deal with the spiritual element, but if we don't deal with the element of the soul, the psychological, the belief system, the behavior in our life, we can actually accommodate dysfunction and not realize it. I hope I'm being clear. Let me let me put it this way. You can have, uh, if there's Maybe there's a girl who's, uh, uh, someone in a family who's been abused, uh, molested by a family member. Maybe they're raised in a dysfunctional home and there's this kind of dynamic is going on. They get saved. They recognize that this behavior, this overt behavior is wrong. But what they didn't have from their home of origin is a good example of how a functional family operates. So they're missing the social cues of how healthy relationships work. And so they recognize that overt behavior is wrong, but what they may miss is the precursors to that abuse. Do you understand what I'm saying? That there is precursors to that kind of abuse that they might end up missing. And that's why when David wrote this, he said God sets the lonely, the isolated. He sets the lonely in families. Why? Kingdom families, so that we get involved in strong churches where there's strong relationships and we can't afford to be isolated. You don't just get saved and attend church and look at the back of someone's head because you're not, there's all kinds of things in your life you're not gonna be able to deal with by looking at the back of someone's head. The part in their hair is not going to deliver you. It's interacting with them, and as you interact with them, you begin to get an idea of how healthy relationships work because you're picking up reference points, social cues that you didn't have in your home. And the fact is, there's not a person that steps through these doors that doesn't need this in some form or fashion. Because every one of our homes had unhealthy ways of relating. And it may not even have been so much that your your mom and dad were unhealthy, it's just the way you picked that up. Man, if you talk to my siblings, there were four of us. It's you talked about some things that happened, it's like we were raised in different houses. It's because we see things so terribly different. It's because we are different. And so our ways of processing events and all of that, the enemy is looking out to interpret things and shape us. And God's remedy is God, according to David, the one raised by a father, Jesse, who called him, yeah, I've got a worthless one, who when the prophet of God is gonna come and eat with us, I don't even invite him because he's worthless. It was David who got this revelation. God puts the lonely in families. He's a father to the fatherless. We need that influence in our life because it's in those environments that we begin to learn how to do relationships in a healthy way. And part of discipleship is relational conflict. I knew I wasn't getting an amen on that one. Let me say it again. Part of discipleship is relational conflict. Because this is, all, this is all raw material for you and I to grow in Jesus. That we could at odds with each other and working those things out enable us to grow in God. Because it's your soul that is the container of what God puts in your spirit. You're not gonna be able to sustain a move of God. You're not gonna be able to translate your encounter, those glorious events in worship. You're not gonna be able to translate those events into life transformation so that you will walk differently and you don't just refer to events, but you become a lifestyle that I'm walking out the kingdom. The way that's translated is in our relationships. And we live that, we flesh that out in those those relationships. Oh my goodness, it's noon, I can't believe it. I seriously did not know. Let's stand. I'm right in the middle of a point, but we're going to close. Do you hear what I'm saying this morning? There are, there are access points the enemies had in your family. There's method, method methods, schemes, schematics, blueprints, patterns, highways that the enemy has built for generations in your home to get to your heart and take you down. And he wants to visit the devastation of the past on the future of your generations. And you are the stopgap guardian over the gateway to your family's future. But the way that's going to happen is you have understanding and say, God, I want to understand how the enemy traffics in my life. I want you to teach me how to recognize this stuff in my life. And when you don't have it in your home, you find it here among the people of God. Because the good news is, your dysfunction isn't the same as mine. So you're going to help me with mine, and I'm going to help you with yours. In the areas where my family was dysfunctional, I can look at yours, and I can interact with you. And I'm going to realize, oh, I guess this isn't real healthy. And you can do the same with me. And we grow together But we've got to recognize these things. I know you're thinking, Pastor, why'd you have a stand? (laughs) We, We need to recognize these inroads because the danger is this. We get saved and we're delivered from the behavior of our forefathers, but we never confront the underlying belief system. And the very thing we were delivered from becomes visited upon our future generations because we're feeding them the very behavior that produced or the belief systems that produce some of that behavior. So we've got to confront it. I'm almost tempted to have you confess with me altogether. I am dysfunctional, but I will, I will allow the Lord to renew my mind. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you for each one of these this morning. And Lord, we thank you that you are zealous. I feel the zeal of the Lord this morning. He wants every square inch of our territory, our heart, our mind. Father, we're asking that you would open the eyes of our understanding. And Lord, that we would recognize not only the behavior that was negative, but also the underlying belief systems so that we don't tolerate that behavior. We don't accommodate. We don't have a target on us because we have healthy boundaries. We recognize this is not healthy because this is just like I was raised. That our weakness becomes a strength, that it becomes a signal that someone's carrying something our family used to carry and we aren't open to it anymore. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com/give.